when my wife Jennifer and I get into an argument. I know some of you just thought, wait a second, the pastor just submitted to arguing with his wife. Yep, it happens occasionally, time to time. Um, when we get into an argument, my kind of pre-programmed response is to justify myself. So it doesn't matter like what is being said or the reality of what's being said. My immediate like sinful response is to prove why I'm justified, like why my actions are okay. Um, if she points out a sin, and hey, here's something that you've done, my response is this. I know I am, but what are you? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, boom. And this is just this is pre-programmed thing in me that if you, like, come at me, I just, I want to justify myself. It is hard just to swallow and, like, go, you know what, you're probably right. Um, it's hard. It's hard to do. I think this is a, a truth we see in Scripture. That it is much easier uh, for us to see the speck in somebody else's eye, not see the log in our own. And that's true for everybody. And so this is what we do. Uh, as humans, as sinners, we spend much energy trying to justify ourselves. Now, the, the, we're going to read two different stories in Scripture today. But in both of these stories, there are people who are trying to justify themselves. And so... Uh, here's the big truth that I want you to see, and this is what we're going to see from Scripture today, is that this. Christians are justified by faith and saved to work and worship for the glory of God. I'm going to read that again. So I'm saying a lot, and this is a loaded statement. Christians are justified by faith, and they're saved to work and to worship for the glory of God. Now, we're going to read these two, two stories in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read the first one. We're going to deal with it. I'm going to read the second one. Then we'll deal with it. And we'll tie them together at the end. And so, here's the first story, starting in verse 25. This is a story that you've probably heard before. If you've never even heard this story, you've heard the term, a good Samaritan. This is where we get this story from. A, a, the, the story of the good Samaritan. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So, the man we see in verse 25, a lawyer. He would have been a Pharisee. Okay, this was, He was part of the Pharisees, the religious uh, sect. And as a lawyer, he would have been an expert in the laws of the Old Testament. And so when he asked this question, it shows him, it said he's, Putting him to the test. He did not ask this question in good faith. He asked him in order to entrap him, which they were always trying to do to Jesus. I mean, this was over and over and over. The Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to stumble. And so he actually asked a really good question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so he said to him, This is Jesus. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And here here I want to just just make a small point. Is that hermeneutics matter. Hermeneutics are, it's it's the, the system in which the art, the science, however you want to look at it, that we use to interpret scripture. And there's, there's different rules that we use as we look at how we interpret the Bible. And, and, and actually, this lawyer uses a great hermeneutic here. Uh, hermeneutics are, are, are important. Uh, we teach hermeneutics all the time. Uh, on Sunday mornings when I'm preaching, I, I am intentionally kind of showing you this is how we read Scripture. Um, in our inductive Bible studies, we're constantly teaching you this is how you do hermeneutics. These are the rules. This is what we're going to do to interpret Scripture. Um, last week, I talked about our uh, servant leadership cohort that's getting ready to to start, one of the first lessons is on hermeneutics, the the study of scripture. And he gets it right because what he does here is there's this, this, one of the first principles in hermeneutics is that we let scripture interpret scripture. And so when we see something in the scripture and we don't understand the answer to it, we don't go to uh, some other secular source or some other pastor, we go to the Bible, and we let the Bible show us, help us interpret and see the Scripture. And so he does that. And what he does is he goes to the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, every good Jewish person, in their raising their entire life, in their adulthood, in their home, they would have quoted this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We, we know it as the, the Shema. And he would, he, would have, he would have quoted this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the answer to the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He gives the answer, love God, love people. And here's what Jesus said. You've answered correctly. 
Do this and you will live. Now, here's my first big idea. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, hey, Zach, that's scripture, right? Yeah, that's scripture. And so we're letting scripture interpret scripture. And so here Jesus says, if, if, if you want to have eternal life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself, and then you will live. Where's the problem? The problem is that that is impossible because we are sinful. We, we're, we have this broken sin nature, and no one can keep that law. No one can love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind, and no one can love their neighbor as their self. We fail at this. We don't just fail at this. We fail miserably at this. So the passage that I quoted is in Romans chapter 3. Here's something else in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. None. There are none that are righteous. Here's what Paul has to say in this passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so here I want you to see our justification. This guy's, this, he's trying to justify himself. You'll see this. Our justification isn't in our own works or in our ability to keep the law, the commandments. We're justified by Christ's righteousness and his holiness and his ability. Whom, being Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So, God put His Son, Jesus Christ, as this atoning work. That's what propitiation is. He, he went before us as the, the sin offering. He went before us to take our punishment. To take the wrath that we deserve. Jesus took on Himself. And that those who believe in Him receive what we would say is imputed righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness, not our own Second half of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. And so that word forbearance is a word of good news. That means that God, um, he had forbearance to bear our sin, to, to go and forgive us of past sins. This is a word that shows us God's unmerited favor, his mercy and his grace on those who believe. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We do not save ourselves. Our good works do not save us. Our worship does not save us. The only thing that can save a sinner is Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is good news. That is good news because that puts us in the place of, I don't have to save myself. I have a Savior and His name is Jesus. I don't have to justify. I don't have to look and say, but look at all the things I've done. And look, they outweigh the bad. 
look, I'm mostly good with a little bit of bad. No, we don't have to do that. We go that Christ is our righteousness. Now, verse 29, the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's almost as if Jesus was God. And Jesus knew who he was talking to, and he knew the sins that the other person he was talking to. He knew the person that he was talking to, what their struggle would be. Right? Absolutely he knew. Over and over and over, as they were trying to keep him in traps, they didn't realize they're talking to God who knows them inside and out. And so, here Jesus knows this man has some sin, and the reason he says, who is my neighbor, is to justify some things that he's not doing, because... By Jesus' standard, now go and do likewise, he's not doing it. He's not able to do it. And so here's my next big idea, is that we tend to justify the sins from which we don't want to repent. October 2014, I was uh, kind of coming to the end of being a student pastor. I've been a student pastor about 10 years, and it was kind of in the works that I would become uh, the, the next executive pastor at the church that I served at, and, and we kind of knew the direction it was had. I'd been in this church 10 years. Um, I, I got to preach maybe on Sunday morning to the whole congregation, uh, maybe one, two, three times a year later on, but as a student pastor, it was like once or twice a year. It wasn't very often I got to preach. And um, I got up just a little overzealous one Sunday, and I had a burden on my heart, and I got up, and I preached what I thought was going to be a, a barn burner. I just thought, like, man, this is going to be a solid, smoking hot message, right? And people are going to repent, and it's going to be awesome. And uh, afterwards, you know, a lot of people came up to me and was like, that was a convicting message. You've made me think about a lot. I, I've got some things I need to repent of. And, like, in good faith, like, not just your little old ladies, but, like, some serious, serious guys were like, man, this was good. I got in the car to go home, and I thought, man, I'm the stuff. And, and Jennifer's like, uh, you're going to cause a firestorm. Like, this is not going to be good for you. And I was like, no, it's okay. Well, sure enough. Well, I mean, we hadn't even gotten home from the Mexican restaurant. And I get a phone call from the current executive pastor, the senior pastor's out of town, and basically saying, you've caused the firestorm. There are, there are people who are saying they're leaving our church over X, Y, and Z. And, and people were mad. It's so interesting. For the next 24 hours, it came in. Our senior pastor gets a call. Like, he's all worried. He has to go. He's mad at me. He thinks I've done this bad thing, right? And then he listens to the message, and he's like, well, it was like not a great sermon, but what you said wasn't true. <laughs> you know, it was good, it was good stuff. And um, it was so interesting that everything that got nitpicked, Everything that kind of got like pointed out, he said this, had nothing to do with the content of the sermon. It was something about an illustration, something about an example. He said this, and he shouldn't have said this. You know, he, he made a joke, and you shouldn't make jokes. I mean, it was just ridic it was like ridiculous stuff. Why? I think because they were convicted of the sin that they did not want to repent of. And so what did they do? But they nitpicked everything else. And so what do they essentially say? But I know I am, but what are you? You can't, you, you said this from the pool. You can't say that, Pastor. I, um, 
I think I said something's a load of crap. I think that was one of the things that really got me in trouble. I was like, that? that? And I, I made a joke, I remember this, about the state of Tennessee. A lot of people were from Tennessee in the room. And uh, these people were from Tennessee. And that's like, I mean, I, I remember kind of, it caused a firestorm. We do this. When we're convicted of sin, we grasp at straws in order to not have to deal with it. Listen to me. God, in his sovereign mercy and grace, showed us in his word what is righteous and what is good and what is evil and what is sinful. He showed us in his word what's clearly. And so here's what you need to know. There is nothing in the sinful, evil, bad category in the Bible that is good that he's withholding from you. And so if he says, hey, don't do that, don't be that way, it is for your good. It is not to harm you. It's that he, he knows what humanity needs in order for humanity to flourish, and he's given that to you. And so there's, there's nothing within the Jesus ethic within the Jesus way of life, within the good news of the gospel that is bad news for you. It's exactly the opposite. The things of the world, so often what the world says is good is actually evil. And so don't hold on to it. So if you are convicted by the scriptures and you see something clearly in the scriptures, the best thing you can do is repent of it. Turn from it. So, here's the parable that Jesus tells. Jesus replied, and, and, and remember, this is a parable. So this isn't necessarily something that happened, though it very, it very well seems like this could have happened. right? Jesus is going to tell a story that was relatable, that they could understand, and he's going to use this to prick their hearts and to show them uh, what, what needs to be corrected. And so he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. Uh, Jericho is almost 1,000 feet below sea level. It is in a short span uh, that, that it drops that 4,000 feet. And so in that short span, it was treacherous, right? And so he's painting that picture for them. This is a treacherous journey. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. And so we see other places in Scripture where there were, there were places and roads and travels that were prom for this kind of thing. This was one of them. So this was easy for them to imagine. And so they strip him and they beat him and they leave him half dead. And so they have this picture in their brain of here's this guy. Here he is on the road. He, he's, been, he's been half dead. This was very believable. It would be like me saying, we were on I-25 and we got stuck in traffic. You're like, yeah, we did. Of course we did. How could we not have? Right? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so, this is a priest. Right? So, this person is an Israelite in the tribe of Levi, but held a priestly position. They're, they're at the top. This is supposed to be a man of God, a follower of God. This is a religious man. Uh, more than likely, he's leaving Jerusalem where he had served in the temple, going back to where he lives, maybe Jericho or beyond. right? And so this, is, this should be a holy man. 
And he sees him, and he does what the Pharisees so often do, and looks at him and thinks, unclean, unclean. If I touch that man, I'm going to have to go through ceremonial cleansing. I'm going to be unclean. So I'm just going to skirt around him, and I'm going to leave him there. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. So now, this is an Israelite in the tribe of Levi, but not to the position of priest. So this, this would be a, probably a servant in the temple. Uh, this would probably be somebody who is religious, but they're not so religious as a priest. So, so Jesus is bringing the bar from, hey, this person should have cared. He's bringing the bar down some. And again, they pass by and in their head think, I don't have time for this. I'm too busy for this. I ain't helping that sucker. He shouldn't have been traveling alone. He shouldn't have whatever else. It's his fault. He shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have put himself in that position to get robbed. Or whatever. So, a third person comes. Now, i got to think that, the, that, that there's people who are listening. The, the blue-collar guy. The, the, the guy who's just the good old Israelite boy. He was like, all right, here I come. I'm coming to save the day. It's my time to shine. But no. Instead, Jesus says something that would have been unthinkable for the Israelite, for the Jewish person. But a Samaritan. Man, I mentioned this within the past few weeks that, man, they're, that the Israelites hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Israelites. There was a rift. It went back to the Babylonian era, and when the Israelites were in exile, uh, there was, there was the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, who remained pure and did not intermarry, but the Samaritans in that area, they took on uh, foreign wives, and they married, and all of a sudden, they're worshiping false gods. And so there's 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 just a feud and somewhat of a family feud over how to worship and, 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 and who to worship. And there's all this stuff that's going on. And they had just got to this place where they hated each other. They despised each other. For them, for this parable, when we talk about the Good Samaritan, like there was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. That thing doesn't exist and so here this Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He stopped, and he cared. It wasn't just plain compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds. And he took his wine that would have had alcohol in it, and he poured it on it to, to kill any germs, and then he took his oil like it's a salve, and he rubbed it, in his wounds, he took care of him. He got his blood on him. The next day, he took, took out two denarii. He took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he gives a denarii, gives it to the innkeeper. This would have been enough to, to, for like two weeks or more of his care to stay in the inn. And he says to him, uh, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. He lavishes his resources. He lavishes his love in compassion on this half-dead man. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer reluctantly said this. He won't even say it was the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Here's my next big idea. Is that Christians are called to be ministers of mercy without prejudice. Christians are called to be ministers of mercy without prejudice. Luke chapter 4. We see the start of Jesus' ministry. And we've talked about this over and over in the book of Luke. It's like Jesus came and he answering from Isaiah says, I came. To restore the sight of the blind, to heal the lame, right? To cause the lame to walk, cause the blind to see, to free the oppressed. Like we see that in Jesus' ministry, there were compassion ministries. There were ministries of mercy. Listen, you cannot say you love God. You cannot say you're a follower of Jesus and have no mercy. You can't. Christians are called. If, if we're saying we follow Jesus, Jesus was merciful. We're called to ministries of mercy. We're called to compassion ministry. You know, I, I pointed this out in, in weeks ago, but you can, you can see uh, the, in the book of James, you can see how much his time with Jesus, his half-brother, influenced his, his thinking. And again, I think when James wrote James chapter 2, there had to be, as he's recounting the different things that Jesus taught, the parable of the Good Samaritan had had to be one of the things that helped frame his thinking. Because this is what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough to say, oh, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's that your actions must match your profession. The very things that you say line up. And this is why it happens. It's because what we talked about earlier, we're not not justified by our actions. We're justified by Christ. What's what God does, uh, does in us. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I once lived in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. And so it's the transformation that happens in our heart at salvation. What God works in our heart works out. We are called to be people of ministry and uh, mercy, mercy ministry and compassion. Historically, This has been true of Christians in the church. In so much of history, if you look at who cared for the poor, who cared for the hungry, who cared for the sick, guess what? It's been the church. In the history of our country, as most hospitals were founded, what were they called? Baptist Hospital of X. Methodist, Presbyterian, like they were founded. If you look at the the kind of the large compassion ministries in our in, in our in our country, you think about Christmas time and they're the ringing the bell as you go to help people at Christmas. You help go feed the poor. It was the Salvation Army. What is the root of Salvation Army? But Christianity, 
You, you look at ministries like uh, Samaritan's Purse. You look at all the different big ministries. They're those who are feeding the poor, caring, caring for them. They, the roots are Christianity. Uh, one of the things at church, when we, we often say you don't just give to the church, but through the church, uh, we give to Send Relief. And it's a ministry, Send Relief, it is the third largest compassion ministry in the U.S. It's run by Baptists, and we do all sorts of compassion ministry works. In our church, we do ministries of compassion. When we partner with Serve 6-8 uh, in our own community, those are things of, of compassion. We see in James chapter 2 that ministry, uh, that religion that is pure and undefiled is to care for the widow and the orphan in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Some Sundays, a quarter of the kids at our church are foster or adopted. Part of our compassion ministry. It, it, is, it is one of the heartbeats of our church. Now, I'm not saying by any means that we're doing everything we need to do. And I look around our community, and I see problems, and I see holes. And I think the answer is the church being the church. And we need to step up, and we need to do it. It's a, it's a, it's a commitment to that. But we must do so without prejudice. Christians are called to ministries of mercy without prejudice. Compassion should have no discrimination. The Samaritan had no discrimination when he ministered to what we presume would have been a Jewish person laying there half dead. We can't, we can't look and go, hey, we're going to withhold compassion from people who aren't like us, who think differently than us. We can't just look at them and go, well, it's our, their, their fault that they got there. Well, they have a, a different uh, identical politi uh, uh, political identity than I do, or they're, they're this or they're that, therefore I'm not going to help them. No. We, we should have no discrimination in our our, our compassion. Listen, you cannot love God and hate your neighbor. You can't do it. I'm going to tell you about two different people in my life. One named Johnny. And one... It's got a very unique name, so my third grade Sunday school teacher. They were two of the biggest racists that I'd ever met. Johnny just said these deplorable things. He was a neighbor, um, lived a couple miles down the road, grew up in North Georgia in, in, a, in a place that just had a very you know, thick, dark, nasty racial background. It's old South. And Johnny just said things that, I mean, he told every joke, every slang word. I mean, there was just a real hatred in his heart. It was, it was awful. My third grade teacher, she didn't have a bad mouth on her. She didn't say these deplorable things, but she said really bad things. And it was obvious that, again, she had a hatred in her heart. I remember in third grade, she said, Black people can go to heaven, just not the same level of heaven as white people. And I knew, as a third grader, 
that that was a bunch of garbage, right? I thought, like, what in the world? Who, who died and made you God, right? Like, how do you get to determine that? And I thought, I thought like, later on as I thought about it, like, she, not, she never got to determine, like, I, she probably didn't get to figure out if there were any levels in heaven, but maybe if there were different levels of hell. You know, like, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you get to say that? My third grade Sunday school teacher. There was no doubt. Levels of prejudice. If you really fulfill the royal law, James chapter 2, verse 8, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so, James is like, I, this is why I think, man, this, the, the story of this, the parable of the Good Samaritan is influencing his thought process. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as trans, transgressors. Listen, in the world that we live in, we, we live in a world that's really defined by identity politics. And that means that our, our politics, the things that we think politically, really define who we are. And in our world, it puts you in two camps. You're on the left or you're on the right. You're a progressive or you're a conservative. You're a Democrat or you're a Republican. And we kind of like put it in these boxes. And so what's happened in, in something we call in, in political terms, political science, or even in sociology, is, is something called intersectionality. And, and basically intersectionality says an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so what happens sometimes is that we co-opt causes. And so... What has happened is that the left has co-opted uh, anti-racism. That, being, uh, be, that means if you are on the left side of the political spectrum, that you need to be anti-racist. Now, what that means is if you're on the right, that, that, that's not your cause. Now, nobody wants to be a racist, but that's not your cause. So they've, we, we've, we've kind of co-opted that. Well, what puts us at odds is that in so many things... The, the, the church agrees more with things on the right than they do on the left. And so it's all of a sudden, it's like, we don't care about ra racial reconciliation anymore? Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, we we are, are called to a kingdom that knows no race, that, that is reconciled all nations in all languages, in all ethnicities. Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. James goes beyond race. So, partiality, I mean, it definitely can be because of ethnic pride. It can be because of, of groups. So, we see Samaritans and Jews, and we see essentially... Uh, uh, one of a race that thinks they're pure and the other one that looks and says, hey, they're half-breeds. They intermarried. They're, they're, they're mixed, whatever, and, and put a racial slur to it, right? The Bible goes beyond that. E even James in chapter 2, he says, you know, what happens if a, a, 
a rich man comes in. He's wearing gold and fine clothes, and there's a poor woman. And you say, you say to the poor person, hey, you sit here, and then you take the rich person, and you give them the best seat in the house. Like, that's even showing partiality. So what we see in Scripture, what we see over and over in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is that there is no social class system in the kingdom of heaven. In the world, we have made a caste system, and that caste system prioritizes people, and it puts them on the bottom all the way to the top. And no matter what level you're on, you don't like the people above you, and you don't like the people below you. And that will not exist in the kingdom of heaven. That should not exist for the Christian. We, we must own this. That there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. I would invite you to, to examine yourself, not to have the response right now, I know I am, but what are you? Well, I know I do this, but surely you do that. You know, just to truly like examine yourself to go, is there a place where I am holding on to the sin of partiality? Is there a people group that I look down on? Is there a people group who I have hatred in my heart to? I mean, I have a feeling that if I were to say, hey, let's all go to Old Town on a field trip and let's take the max line, that some people in here would be like, I ain't riding the max line. There are too many homeless people on the max line. That's where the drug at. That's how they get around. I ain't taking the max line, right? There's, there's some level. If I say, hey, let's go over here and do ministry, you're like, man, those people, those people are in our country illegal anyway. They ought to go home. Whatever it is, I'm asking you to evaluate your heart and to see, is there some, a sin in your life that you're like, if that person needed compassion, I wouldn't show it to them. And if that's the case, you need to repent. You need to repent and make it known. I told you about that third grade Sunday school teacher. As far as I know, she just stayed a racist. She was in her late 50s, early 60s. Got some sort of cancer and died. Johnny, however, long around, I don't know, 2014, 2015... There's this faithful, faithful man who shared the gospel with him multiple times in his life, even though this man was big and intimidating and mean and just a mean, racist dude. The gospel was shared with him repeatedly, and he came to faith in Christ. And as he came to faith in Christ, I remember seeing this. This is what caused me to discover this. He, he said something on Facebook, and he quoted a Bible verse and said, we, we're all equal in the eyes of God, and he quotes it and, and says, Basically, like, all races are reconciled. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. As soon as I saw it, I knew what happened. I was like, the dude got saved. And so I make a phone call, and sure enough, the Lord moved and worked and saved him. And he repented and made it known. Now, there's some of you who need to repent of the sin of partiality. And you need to make it known. Listen to me, parents. There are students... We, we, we are taught, like the Jewish person had to be taught to hate the Samaritan. The Samaritans were taught, taught to hate the Jewish people, right? And so there, there's some of you who you have taught your kids, whether you know it or not, 
to buy into this sin of partiality, to buy into some form of racism. And so you ought to have a conversation today around lunch going, hey, that's me. I'm wrong. I need to repent of the sin of partiality. I'm going I'm to plead with God and I'm going to repent. I'm going to work on this. You need to own it to your kids. You need to repent and make it known. Now, since we're in this like real heavy, deep spot, here's a great point to transition to another, sermon, uh, another story. Verse 38. Lighten, lighten it up in here a little bit. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, um, Jesus on the way uh, to, to a village where this is Bethany because we know where Mary and Martha lived. Uh, Mary and Martha, they had a, a, a brother, Lazarus, who later on Jesus raises from the dead. In this passage, Martha kind of like is put in a bad light, but just know this, Martha gets a lot right later on. This is an impactful moment on Martha. And so, so often what would happen, we see in Scripture, is that Jesus would send his disciples forward. He was looking for a place to stay. And here, she, they, they've told him, Martha's heard he's coming. Oh my goodness, Jesus is coming to my house. I've got to get the house in order. I've got to get everything clean. I've got to make a good, good meal. I've got to scramble. I've got to make sure the candles are there and that Spotify's got the right playlist and there's no dog air anywhere. And like, Jesus is coming. He's got, it's got to be nice for him. He gets there, and she's not done yet, and the meal's not done, and so she's worried, and she's cooking, and she's making it all happen. And Mary, who's supposed to be helping her, just sits right at the feet of Jesus and starts worshiping immediately. Martha's like, what? I need help. You need to come in here. Let's go. Now, I want to point out something. Just because we've been talking about the sin of partiality. Um, many people throughout history and throughout the church, including the modern church, look at Mary and think, you know what? Mary needs to get her butt back in the kitchen because that's where women belong. I'll just remind you what I read a minute ago. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you all have one in Christ Jesus. So, um, when we talk about the sin of partiality, sexism is one of the things there. Anyway, that was a side note. That was all free. You didn't have to pay for it. Jesus corrects her. Martha, Martha. Here you are busy. And here's the next big idea is that we tend to use our good works to justify our lack of faith. We tend to use our good works to justify our lack of worship. We tend to justify our works in order to excuse other things. Now, I think this happens for non-Christians. I think non-Christians often go, 
But I'm like this Samaritan. I do all these good things. I will stop and help somebody. I will do this and I will do that. And they use it to justify not, not bowing down and worshiping Jesus. Right? I think that's true. That may be some of you in the room. But I think Christians often do it. I think I often do it. I think I often get so busy in ministry. I get so busy in what I'm doing that I fail to pause and worship. And it shows my lack of faith. Because if in my, in my faith, in my belief that God can get it done, I will stop. And I will listen. I will worship. It, it means that we should be devoted to reading and studying the Bible for ourselves. It means that we should be devoted to prayer. It means that we should be devoted to the gathering together of the saints. It means we should be devoted to discipleship and to the, the study and the building up of the faith into one another. And so we tend to use our good works to justify that. Verse 41, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. The one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Here's my next big idea. The greatest choice you will ever make is to choose the good portion. The good portion is Jesus. And it's better than anything else. The good portion that you should choose is Jesus. Put your mind back on the lawyer in his original question. What shall I do to inherit everlasting life? That is the most important question he ever asked. And it's the most important question you will ever ask. What must I do to inherit everlasting life? Is it to work out my faith? Is it to worship my way to heaven? No. It's to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. It's to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised His Son from the dead and be saved. It is faith in Jesus that saves. However, Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast However, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, our work and our worship don't justify us. No, it's our faith and justification in Jesus that produces our work and worship. Today, I just have a couple things. If you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ... Don't be like the lawyer and try to justify yourself. Run to the only just one. Run to the only one who can justify you. That is Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Second, if you are saying, hey, I am a follower of Christ, be a minister of compassion. Be a minister of mercy. Be merciful, compassionate people. Three, if you have some sort of sin in your life that is the sin of partiality, it's sexism, racism, classism, what, what, whatever, it, whatever it is, whatever thing that you have, repent of it today. Turn and run from it. And four, don't be so busy working that you forsake worship. Choose the good portion. Choose Jesus. So, Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word.
Lord, I pray that we would not be like James describes, the, the man who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. That we would not be hearers only, but doers also. And that your word would drive our actions, would drive our life in the way that we live it. Lord, I pray that, that you would rid from us the sin of partiality, any sins of, of racism, any, any sins of prejudice, Father. That we would, we would realize, though, that we are broken people in need of a Savior. Lord, I pray that we'd be compassionate people. People who realize, but not for the grace of God, we would be in a different place ourselves. And help us to do ministry loving and caring and help us to, to lean down and lean in and to love those whom you love. Let us love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified by our worship this morning. You'd be glorified by the lives we live for your good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.